1992, after my sophomore year at the University of Delaware, I landed an internship at the Champaign-Urbana News Gazette out by the University of Illinois. I was 20, making $5 an hour, living by myself, miserable. To keep busy, I tried taking up cigarette smoking and failed. I started playing basketball at the Y and broke my left ankle. My TV was black and white and 13 inches, and the two shows that always seemed to be on were Star Trek and The 700 Club. Upstairs from me, a man and woman were always screaming at one another. It was the worst summer of my life, and I walked away with 50 clips and a taste of the real world. The biggest lesson for me? Sometimes the shittiest times are, experience-wise, the most life-changing times. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Dave Kindred, the legendary former Washington Post columnist who now, approaching his 79th birthday, devotes his days to covering the Morton High School girls basketball team at mortonladypotters.com. It's the best friggin' thing ever. This is episode number 142. Let's sling some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks. All right, Dave. So took us a while for the connection to get going here. We definitely had some technological difficulties. And I want to give you an out, which is I was, I was looking for articles from your career, and I wanted to find the oldest article I could find involving Dave Kindred. Uh-huh. The February 5th, 1962, the panograph from Bloomington, Illinois, and the headline, the bold headline on page seven is Dave Kindred to Marry. And the you know, the lead is Miss Cheryl Leisman, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Glenn. Is it Leisman or Leisman? Leisman. Is engaged to be married to Dave Kindred, son of Mr. and Mrs. John Kindred of Atlanta. She's a senior at the Memorial Hospital School of Nursing in Springfield and will graduate in August. He is a junior at Illinois Wesleyan University and is a sports staffer at the Daily. Uh, both are 1959 graduates of Atlanta High School. I think my opening question is, do you think Cheryl had any idea what she was in for when she married a sports writer? Could she have any, had any clue what this path would be? She had no clue, but I have to give her credit. First of all, I have to give you credit for digging that up. I'm a hoarder. I'm a rat packer, pack ratter, and I have everything ever, but I do not have that. Probably because I didn't write it. If I had written it, I'd have saved it somewhere. But I don't even remember seeing that or knowing that it happened, that such an announcement was made. But no, she did not know what she was getting in for. She soon learned she didn't like it. She soon learned that she loved me more than she didn't like it. And so this, as you noted in that um, little article there, February 24th of 1962, we were married. So February 24th of this year will be 58 years. So it worked. I have a million questions to ask you, truly. My, I was just telling my wife about you two seconds ago. And I, I basically, she's not really a, a reader of sports writing, not, not majorly. And I was like, I'm about to have this guy on my podcast, Dave Kindred, who I, I've read for years and he's covered everything. And he's covering, you know, he's covering the Morton Lady Potters in Morton, <laughs> Illinois, a the girls' high school basketball team, and you've been doing it since 2010, and you do it for fun, and you say you do it for the Milk Duds, but you do it for fun, and you you cover all their home games on, on your website. 
I guess I know you've been asked this a million times, but I really want to know why. Well, I'll, I'll correct you on the fly here. I, I cover all of their games, not just their home oh, games. Excuse me. In, in 10 years, I've missed five games, I think. That includes home and away. I estimate that I've written 500,000 words about the Morton High School girls basketball team. In game stories, I've produced four books when they've won state championships. Not book books, you know, not books that uh, Jeff Perlman would write, but book books that are fan books. Lots of pictures, you know, stories about each girl, stories about the season. I reprint the, the Facebook posts that I write. And yes, it's fun, but it also is, it's important to me in ways that, that I didn't even know were important when I started doing it. I started doing it because my sister had babysat one of the girls uh, that eventually was a Lady Potter. One day in my sister's kitchen, there were three, four women that were talking about having been cheerleaders in high school. My wife was a cheerleader. My sister was a cheerleader. This girl, Carly Crocker, her mother, Lisa, was a cheerleader. So someone asked Carly, who was then 12, if she was going to be a cheerleader. And Carly said, no, I'm going to be the one they cheer for. Well, she had me at no. And so three years later, we moved to Illinois. Carly is a basketball player. I go to see her play. And you'll understand this better probably than your wife will. But it's impossible for me to sit at a basketball game and not have questions and not want those questions answered. So I began writing about the Morton High School Lady Potters and I've been doing it ever since. I do it because it's fun. It kind of closes the circle. I'm 78 years old, kind of semi-retired. I'll work for money if anybody wants to pay me, you know, and hmm. it puts me back in the small high school gymnasiums that I started in as a player that I first covered high school basketball for the Daily Panagraph, Bloomington, Illinois. So it's it's just fun to to do it. I much prefer it to watching guys play. Guys are much more interested in preening and posturing and pouting and proving their manhood. And the girls are more mature. I think we eventually, all of us guys learned that. And I, I like that they have poise, the composure, and they're very good at it. The coach is a very good coach. 21st season, he's won over 500 games. You know, the, the girls in the last six seasons are 193 and 13. So wow. if they were 13 at 193, I might not be having as much fun, but it's, they're 29 and 0 this year with a chance at going undefeated, winning another state championship, their fifth and sixth seasons. Um, so I do it because it's fun. It, I write it in a different way than I've written anything ever. And I finally gave up on trying to create ways to hide the score in a game story. I just start with the score. Morton 60, Pekin 40. And then I write a, some kind of little essay on something I saw in the game or something I saw in the bleachers, or something I saw on the way to the game. So it's been fun, and I think the girls like it. I've said before, Jeff, and I don't know where you stand on this, but I think in my time as a sports writer, and that's a long time, of course, in my time as a sports writer, I think the most important development in sports has been Title IX. 
has been giving women as much chance to be athletes as we've always given the guys. And I think that what I do with, with the girls is just my kind of small payment for the thousands of days I've wasted writing about basketball that, uh, that I didn't much like. I have one of your essays in front of me. It's from February 7th. The story was Morton's Lady Potter 60, Pelkin 40. You've never heard me complain about my seat in the Potter Dome. I love the place. I love being on any row anywhere in the building. Ten years now, I've watched the Lady Potters, and I've loved every minute of it. But tonight, tonight, ah, sweet night it was. The first time Maggie Hobson touched the ball, the five foot eight sophomore guard shot it. I didn't see that shot. I'd chosen to sit in a place which I should not have chosen. People walked, climbed, jumped around, on through me. They were mostly whose ages can be reported in single digits. The darlings were always on their way somewhere. Then the sweethearts always came back from wherever they had gone. As the little dear ones returned and bumped, fell, swirled around me with their soft drinks and popcorn, Maggie Hobson's shot must have been a very good shot. I can say that because a public address announcer, Brian Noonan, did his iconic three thing. So I turned to a man two rows up and said, who scored? Maggie, the man said. So it was three nothing, Morton and the undefeated Potters are on their way to their 29th victory. I freaking love that. A million... I don't think there's ever been anything I love on this podcast as much as that. What are you looking for when you go to a game? The thing I do all the time, and I've done this forever. I don't know when the the sentence first occurred to me, a way to explain this. I think watching Michael Jordan, actually, because I, I saw Michael Jordan so many times that it, it, be, it dawned on me that every time I see him, he does something I've never seen before. The first time I noticed that was in Minneapolis, I think. Where he's coming down, he's coming down on a fast break on the left side of the lane, and he goes up, and in the air, floating toward the basket, he turns around. Now he's his back is to the basket, and with his left hand, he hits his right forearm and pops the ball up in the air, and it goes in. Well, I'd never seen anybody do that, so I wrote about that, and that's what I now do. Everything, and I'm talking about whether I'm quoting Lefty Drizel, or I'm quoting Bob Knight, or I'm at a, you know, I'm earning my milk duds at a Lady Potter's game, I wait until I see something I've never seen before. When I see something I've never seen before, or maybe I've forgotten I've seen it, maybe I've never seen it before, <laughs> I try to write about it. Well, I've never been at a basketball game where I had to keep dodging six and seven-year-old kids who were milling around. In addition to which, I know the Morton is going to win by 20, 30, 40 points. So I'm looking for something else to some other way to get into writing about the game. I've taught journalism in, in at Bradley and at Illinois Wesleyan. And I tell students that look for something you've never seen before and find a way to write about it. That's part of the fun. It's kind of the detective work of it. How to, what can I possibly say when they've won 193 games in six years? And they win them by 30 and 40 points. What can I find to write about? The week before the one that you're quoting, I wrote about an assistant coach got engaged that day and how she was trying to show her engagement ring to the head coach. The head coach, of course, is a guy and he was clueless. He didn't, couldn't figure out why she was waving her fingers in front of his face. Uh, so I wrote about that as a way to get into the game. Morton's Lady Potter, 66. Metamora 43, headline, Will You Marry Me? And the lead is, <laughs> during the JV game, 
Brooke Bisping sat alongside Bob Becker. The assistant coach sat alongside the head coach as she had sat alongside him a hundred other times, just casually, leaning toward him as if to better hear what he had to say. She let her left hand dangle across her right wrist. Occasionally, she lifted that left hand toward the coach. One time, she made a fist with that left hand and punched the air in front of the coach's face. <laughs> as Bisping moved her left hand to and fro, a right seemed to flash from that hand. A glint, a sparkle. You might even call it a diamond twinkle. From two rows behind Bisping and Becker, I recognized the source of that light. Here I violated several journalistic stay-out-of-the-story rules by suggesting to Bisping, with a gesture or two, that she stand in front of Becker and use her left hand to scratch her nose with the ring finger of that hand. She did that. Her face was alight with joy. Such fun she was having. And here's what Becker did in response. <laughs> he scratched his own nose. Do you enjoy a Lady Potter's game as much as you can enjoy a great Super Bowl? I write about those things as seriously as I've ever written about anything. You know, the the tone is probably different. You know, it's certainly a different, you know, I don't criticize high school basketball players. I don't second guess the coach. You know, I go there to have fun. I mean, my hero is Red Smith. Said people go to games to have fun. They pick up the paper in those days, pick up the paper the next day to have fun again. I think it's all fun, and that's what I look for, and I hope to find it. And, yeah, it's fun. I'm serious about it. I don't just toss them off. I don't write anything that I think is just filling the space because, you know, I'm getting paid nothing. You know, so I just want to make it as good as I can make it and capture a moment that somebody's going to remember. And I should say right here, I should just hire you, Jeff, to read these things to people. <laughs> I want double what you're getting paid. I'll send you a half a box of Milk Duds every, every other game. I'll take it. Do these girls know you're, you're a guy in your late 70s and you're in the stands of these games? They obviously weren't reading the Washington Post or the Louis, Louisville Courier Journal. Like, do they know, uh, do they have an inkling of, not to blow up your ego here, but, you know, but like that they, that who this guy is who's writing about them? Uh, they do now. There's been enough kind of attention paid to, you know, your question. Why? Why is this guy doing this? And the coach has told, the coach has been very good about it. He's 50 years old. You know, he didn't know who I was 10 years ago. He had no idea, you know, but he since has found out th that this is not my first rodeo. You know, it's my last rodeo and it's fun. He knows where I've been, what I've done. You know, he knows the Ali stories. He knows the Washington Post stories. So he's familiar with it. And he has told the girls that I don't know what he's told them, but they understand. They understand that I'm just not a guy hanging around that I'm serious about it. And they, they respond well. You know, I, I ask them basketball questions. I'm not sure exactly how to say this, Jeff, but you know, I don't want to be their buddy. You know, I'm just a guy who comes to the games and writes about the games. I'll ask them questions sometimes. Sometimes I won't talk to anybody. I treat them all as if they're my daughter. I've never had a daughter. It's fun to see them be athletes. It's fun to see them accomplish. I see them grow. I literally see these girls grow from freshmen to seniors, grow in every way. And so, I mean, there are people that as freshmen, I think, you know, why is he paying any attention to that girl? She's never going to be any good. And she turns out to be one that, that goes 10 for 12 in the state championship game four years later. So it's, it's the, the long picture of it is, it's just fun. And I apply my best 
journalistic instincts to all of it. Did you have to make any adjustment from being a quote unquote big time sports writer, whatever that means, to not being a quote unquote big time sports writer, to writing for a website about a high school basketball team, to moving back to Illinois, to not, you know, no more golf digest, no more sporting news, no more national, you know, national sort of that adjustment. Was there one? Well, yeah, there is. I mean, the industry, you know, I didn't die in the industry. The industry died in me. You know, if somebody still wanted to pay me the money that I was making 10 years ago, I'd still be doing that. But there was a year where I lost two six-figure jobs in the same year. You know, so that was kind of an indication to me that, you know, okay, you know, this this may be over. I may have to think of something else. But, you know, writers write. I'm always going to be a writer. I will find things to write about. You know, I've written a book about the Washington Post in this in this time. I did the the book on Ali and Cosell. I've done a book that will be published in a year, another year on a grandson who drank himself to death. So I've found ways to still be the writer, but I've never been a big time guy. I've never thought of myself as a big time guy. I've always been an Atlanta, Illinois guy who got really lucky who liked the work, wanted to be as good as he could be, wanted every story that I wrote to be better than the last one, every sentence to be better than the last one, and people paid me to do it. I mean, I was 35 or 40 years old before I even realized that I could make money doing it. You know, I kept making money, but the money never mattered to me. You know, what mattered to me was the game. The spectacle didn't matter to me. I didn't care if I'd been to 40 Super Bowls. To me, I'd been to 40 football games. The spectacle was part of it, but I literally almost came to dislike the spectacle. That's one of the things I like about the girls' high school basketball games. There is no spectacle. There's no halftime extravaganza. There's no pregame extravaganza. It's a game. That's all I've ever thought about when I go to World Series you know, every World Series since 64, every Super Bowl since like 71, 17 Ali fights. You know, I've been to everything and I've always just cared about the game. I've never cared about the spectacle or the people around it. I've got 30, 40 high school basketball games. And that's really all I cared about anyway. I feel like you're trying well, I, to tell I, me that you're the wrong, you're the wrong person to ask who is better, Shakira or Jennifer Lopez at the Super Bowl halftime show. Well, you're exactly right. I am the wrong person to ask because <laughs> half half times every Super Bowl I went to, I spent half times writing whatever the game. How I wrote half times I wrote like the famous wardrobe malfunction, Janet Jackson. I knew nothing yep. about that until like the next day because I was writing <laughs> during the halftime. So yeah. I'd, None of that stuff ever mattered to me. The nicest thing that anybody ever said to me about a writer is that Dave writes the way he does, not because he's at the Washington Post. It's because he still is an Atlanta, Illinois guy. And that's the way that I've I've just never been a big time. I never wanted to be a big timer. I just wanted to be at the big events. I wanted to be the best that I could be at what I could do. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett, who's 13 and about to be bar mitzvahed. All right, Emmett, first, mazel tov on your big day. 
And I feel like you're the perfect guy to help spread the reach of 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, to the Jewish marketplace. How do you mean? I'm going to say something in English, and you translate it to Hebrew. I'm not so sure I can do that. All right, just try. Okay, here we go. 503 Sports is the best place for throwback jerseys, hats, and t-shirts. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech They have all sorts of leagues, like the USFL. I share Kiddushanu. The WFL. Even Portland State. Wow, Lahadlik Nair is Portland State in Hebrew? I'm a bar mitzvah boy, Dad. Are you doubting me? You mentioned that you were a big Red Smith admirer, but I feel like when I read a lot of old sports writing, like sports writing from the 50s, 60s in particular, not all of it is as great as I sort of would want it to be. And all I mean is like, there's a lot of like, it was a real barn burner in the old shoe house Thursday night, or... Muhammad Ali gave him the old hickamadoo and blah, blah, blah. And every, and sometimes I'm really disappointed. Like I want, I want to read legendary writing. And then I see Red Smith and I'm like, oh, I get it. Like I actually get it. What is it about Red Smith that does it for you? This, his syndicated column used to run in the Chicago papers or maybe even in the, in the daily pantograph once in a while. I, it always sounded like fun. You know, his word choice, his voice sounded like fun. He could kill you with the, you know, with a little dagger, you know, he didn't need a broadsword to do it. I thought he was elegant. I thought the language was elegant. It was simple. It was clean. There was a great rhythm to it. I just liked the idea of, I, I liked his words. I liked the wordplay. You know, there was something about it that, that it read, it, it didn't read like the sports writing that you're mocking there. It didn't read like any of that. And I liked the sound of it. The the rest of it just sounded like, you know, pedestrian. Red was above that. You know, I, I liked his view on things, you know, and I wanted to be as good as I could be. And when I was reading, you know, I, I bought every Red Smith anthology because I, I liked what he said. I liked the way he said it. At the Louisville Courier-Journal, you mentioned a minute ago, I spent most of my nights there working four to one on the desk. Uh, I'd go down to the what we then called the morgue, where we had all the out-of-town newspapers. Back in those days, the only way you could read anything, uh, I'm talking about in the 60s and 70s, the only way you could read anything out of town was to get the newspaper. You know, And so the newspapers had subscription agreements. So I'd go downstairs and just read all the Chicago, all the Chicago and New York papers. Figured those were the best people. And that's where I read, read Jimmy Cannon, Phil Pepe, Dick Schapp, Jim Murray. I read all the, all the ones that were good. And that's another thing that I've learned over the years is I figured out that that is the way I wanted my stuff to sound. So I had to figure out why I liked it. And once I figured out why I liked it, then I had to try to do that. And that's what I've done forever. I mean, I literally copied stuff out of Sports Illustrated when I was a kid. I'd set a Dan Jenkins story up, John Underwood story up beside my typewriter, and I would copy it word for word. I literally did it to see, can I really write those words in that order, in those sentences to make a paragraph? Yeah, I'm talking about time when I'm 13, 14, 15 years old. And um, 
watching the University of Illinois basketball on television and then writing a story on my little typewriter at home and then compare it to what I would read in the pantograph the next day. You know, so I've just always been, uh, you know, you find your own voice. Eventually, your voice comes through in the stories because you, as E.B. White said, you know, if you write enough, you can't hide yourself. And you yeah. can't. Eventually, eventually, you're revealed by the way that you choose to see things and the way that you choose to, to tell those stories. I have a yeah. column in front of me. You, you probably wouldn't even remember. It's from ni- 1977, Dave Kinder, The Washington Post. And your lead was, um, of the world's adolescence, Billy Martin at 49 may be the oldest. Boys caught in the whirlpool of bewildering emotions that marks time's passage sometimes do silly things such as fall in love with a catcher's mitt. For Billy Martin, baseball's bad boy, the childish irrationality most often takes the form of a knuckle sandwich. If Ali wants a great white hope, here's his man. You are really, 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 really times a thousand conversational in your writing in the best possible way. It's, it's flowy and easy and you can hear someone talking. Is there a way to teach that or is there a way? I always, I always work on this with students where I teach and I'm very bad at teaching it is there a way to teach it i don't know i because i've struggled with that myself i mean i understand voice i understand uh i can read anything and i can hear i can literally hear the writer telling me that story it's almost impossible when i say that to students they look at me look with this blank stare like what's he talking about voice what is he talking about you should hear what you're writing I don't do it instinctively because I worked at it because I, that's like even the typing. Can I write those words in that sentence? You know, how do, how do they do that? The, the stuff you read from the, from the Lady Potters is very conversational. That is the way that I would tell that story to somebody face to face, you know, if I wanted it to make it really interesting. And I think that it's hard for students, it's hard for kids to understand that the best writing is stuff that is that sounds like someone's telling you a story. I don't know if it's teachable. I don't think that I've ever succeeded at teaching it. I think that that people tend to think it's some kind of gift. I don't think it's a gift. I think you it's hard work. You know, you learn it again. You you read stuff you like, then figure out why you like it. Why do I like the way that sounds? And then figure out how you can do that. People have said that to me before, that it's colloquial. You know, and it had been said to me as if that's an insult. You know, to me, it's not. (laughs) To me, that's the best thing that anybody can tell you. You know, it's easy. It's accessible. You know, that was the great thing about Frank DeFord. You know, I loved his stuff. He was one of the first people that I read constantly. I mean, I wrote about Bobby Knight for a long time. And then one day I heard that DeFord was going to Bloomington to talk tonight. And I had decided then that I would just throw myself under a train. When I get Sports Illustrated and DeFord is writing about night, I'm just going to have to retire. I'm just going to have to quit, you know, because I've written about him for 20 years. DeFord's going to go there for like three or four days and he will figure it all out. And he did, you know, the rabbit hunter story and DeFord was a master at making complex ideas simple. And that was one of his ways. Instead of psychoanalyzing Knight, 
is the way that we all tried to do. He just said that he, you know, he's one of these hunters that goes off chasing rabbits instead of, you know, whatever he's hunting for, you know, and he had to quit that, you know, and DeFord had this feeling too that was revealed in that story. And I later talked to Frank about that story when I got to know him. And he said, well, if Knight wanted help, I was willing to give him help. And that was his way of saying that, yeah, I wasn't there to be a critic of Knight. I was there to help him. That was kind of a revelation to me, too, that while he told you all the bad stuff about Knight, he was there to help him. And he did it in a in a kind and gentle way and in a simple way. Uh, to me, that was one of the things. And that's I recognize that in DeFord's stuff a lot in the sense of taking a hard idea and making it accessible. Frank is the only really good, great writer, sports writer, the only one who could use cliches in his story that didn't upset me. Because somehow the cliche in his stories always fit. It was always perfectly used. And so it 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 became not really a cliche that stood out off the page. It became literally part of the story that was said perfectly. Cliches are cliches because they are true and they're worth repeating. But you don't do it. You try to write an original sentence every time you want to write something. But Frank could use cliches and make them sound original. And no, and again, that was part of his, of his making a complex idea simple. And he did it in a way that was not offensive to a guy like me who thought cliches are something that you just couldn't use at all. I still cringe anytime I feel myself about to write a cliche. And I, so I don't do it. But Frank could do it and get away with it. I've never read William Faulkner before. And um, someone said I should read Absalom, Absalom. I don't know if you've ever read it by Faulkner. No. I'd n- I've never read Faulkner before. And someone told me it's the greatest book ever written. I need to read it. I need to read it. And I couldn't get past page 17. Um, <laughs> the sentences are about 400 words each. Paragraphs yeah. will be going for pages and pages. You can tell he thinks he's really smart because he was really smart. Sometimes when people say to me, oh, you need to read. You need to read X author. I feel like they're looking to impress me. And sometimes the stuff yeah. that we say is impressive. Sometimes you just want someone to tell you the damn story. I'm all in with that. I agree with that. Absolutely. I don't think I've ever read Faulkner at all. And that's probably one of the reasons is that it was obscure <laughs> to me, you know, and I didn't want to work that hard. You know, you'll understand this being a professional writer your entire life. You know, you write something, you want people to understand it because you want to get paid for it. You want to write some more. There was never anything I felt I could learn from William Faulkner. Not that I was better than William Faulkner or that I was even could be mentioned even in any comic way as a Faulknerian kind of guy. You know, to me, there was nothing I could learn. I could learn from Frank DeFord. I could learn from Jeff Perlman. I could learn from Underwood. I could learn from all of those people. But I couldn't learn anything from William Faulkner that would make me a better sports writer. And so I just never right. read it. Right. E.B. White never wrote about sports, but I could learn something every day from E.B. White. Whenever I got tangled up in sentences in something, sometimes I'd go to Red Smith, but almost always I'd go to anything by E.B. White and read it. And it would be like it would cleanse my mind, you know, because they were all simple sentences 
They were smart sentences. The language was good and simple, and it felt kind. And E.B. White could pull me out of every ditch. William Faulkner, on the other hand, would throw me in the ditch and then stomp on me. I couldn't, would never get out with him. I worked with a guy once who imagined himself as a Faulknerian writer. He one time told the desk, he's famous for this. I won't name him, but he's famous in the business for this is he told the copy desk one time, I'm going for a Faulknerian mood here. Don't change anything, not even a comma. Everybody who's a copy editor has dealt with guys like that. We discussed, and you get asked, you wrote a book about Muhammad Ali. You covered 17 Muhammad Ali fights. I was kind of wondering, I, what was it like at the end when, when, you, when you've covered this guy and he's brilliant and he's amazing? I mean, I found a story by you from 81 the headline was Ali's desperate, degrading need for money taints image. And I feel like you saw him at his best. And then you saw him with Larry Holmes almost crying, having to hit him. Trevor Burbeck beating him in his last fight. What is it like and how do you cover someone who you sort of revered and you know it's going badly and you know it's going on too long? That's a great question. I've dealt with that more in the years after, you know, say 10 years after he retired than I did before. Basically, I, I, I love boxing. One of my early influences was a book. There used to be anthologies produced. It was called The Fireside Book of Boxing. So I read all the great boxing <laughs> stories and was intrigued by the drama of it, just the human drama of the fight, as we all are. You know, at some point, in us, we all are atavistic warriors. So I, I, I looked forward to the fights. I met Ali when he was 24. I was 24, uh, 1966, two years after he won the championship. And of course was fascinated by him both as a maverick, as a rebel, as a, as a great athlete, you know, just as a pop culture figure and made that ride with him forever. And saw where it was going because it goes the same place every time for every great fighter. Every great fighter winds up at the same place. But I quit. When I saw the Holmes fight, I sat in Ollie's corner. I, let's say Ollie's corner is to the left. I sat in the corner to the right, right beside Herbert Muhammad, who was then his manager. And the fight needed to be stopped. I mean, I, I wrote at the time. You know, it's like seeing a train wreck. You know, you know that you're the guy that you're there for. You know, I've because Ali came to know me not as Dave Kindred, but he knew me as Louisville because I was from Louisville. I'd been around him 500 different situations. So he knew me. And, of course, you develop a relationship, even if you're trying to be this, quote, objective, unquote, reporter, columnist. You know, you're not objective because you care about the guy. You know, and you could see that he no longer had it. He no longer had anything. You put it well there a minute ago. Holmes is like crying. Stop this fight. I don't want to hit him anymore. The first time I saw Larry Holmes was in 1974 when he was a sparring partner brought up from Easton, Pennsylvania to Ali's camp at Deer Lake. And he's in the ring with Ali. Uh, he's like 18 years old. And I could see then that he was going to be a good fighter. I mean, he was as big as Ali. He was as fast as Ali. Now let's go. Now we're 
1981, seven years later, Holmes is an undefeated heavyweight champion, and he's in with Ali, who's a, suddenly an old man. Right. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. And then to see what eventually happened, you know, all this stuff about football players and their CTE, you know, Ali got hit in the head a million times. You know, so it's no surprise that he wound up the way he did. His people wanted you to think it was Parkinson's, and maybe it was Parkinson's caused by getting hit in the head a million times. To me, it was just brain damage, and I gave up on fighting. I no longer wanted to be around it. I couldn't stand to see it happen because I then knew, having loved Ali, having been with him, having written about him every way you could write about a guy, and then to see that happen just turned me off to the whole idea of, of boxing. I've, I did one more heavyweight fight after Ali retired. I did some with Evander Holyfield because he was from Atlanta and I was there. But I did one after that, Tyson against somebody, and just quit. I did it for the book on Ali. But I didn't want to be a party anymore to the ultimate brain damage once I saw that it had happened with Ali. Actually, I actually have a piece in front of me you wrote from 1980. And this was right before the Holmes fight. And you wrote, um, he was a black man who told white men he didn't need them. He was a fighter who became the world heavyweight champion. He had three wives. Partly because white men didn't like his uppity ways, he was in trouble with the federal government. When the government's harassment made it hard for him to get fights, he became an actor briefly. He once got into the ring against a wrestler. He was a braggart and a clown who liked to drive fancy cars very fast. A lot of people called him the best fighter of all time. He was Jack Johnson, who won the heavyweight championship of 1908. They made a movie of his life called The Great White Hope. When Muhammad Ali saw that movie, he pointed at the screen and said, that's me. The similarities go on and on. And then he wrote, at age 38, Muhammad Ali is also flabby and out of shape. He too needs his fraction of a 6.5 million paycheck that would come from a July 11th fight with Larry Holmes, the champion. Ali has not fought for 19 months now. He has not fought anyone except Leon Spinks, the fangless cabbage, in the last 31 months. Holmes in those 31 months has fought nine times. It was like you knew he was going to get his ass kicked. Like you didn't, it seems like you had zero doubt that this was a bad idea. Cause I had seen him sometime in that period when the first time I ever noticed that he was using dye on his hair because he suddenly had noticed that he was getting gray hairs. So he had dyed it. And I saw him at some, at an event somewhere where I just thought that he, he was bloated. He looked terrible. There's, and then he got in, quote, in shape for that fight by going on some kind of, you know, absurd diet where he lost, suddenly lost like 30 pounds in a couple months. You know, it should not have been, he should never have been in the fight. And, and you could tell that going in. You, you hoped against hope that you were wrong because he had proven you wrong so many times in so many different ways. And you hoped that there was some miracle, even in that fight, even in the Holmes fight where he was helpless, you kept hoping against hope. He's going to come out of this in a minute. In a minute, he's going to be Ali again. You know, but he wasn't. Ali was gone. You know, it was a shell. Just uh, there was Ali's body was there, but the Ali that, that we know, that we knew was gone, long gone. If I were starting a rock band right now, I think I would name it Fangless Cabbage. You literally called Leon Spinks <laughs> the Fangless Cabbage. And I know he had no, his two front teeth were missing. I'm actually being serious. What would make the term <laughs> fangless cabbage enter Dave Kindred's head in 1981? I have no idea. 
cabbage. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. No idea. Fangless, I get. Good. Cabbage, I don't know where that would come from. You've written many a book. I always find like, if, like I had Lee Montville on a few weeks ago, and he's written a ton of books. But the one that fascinated me was he did a, biog- a little-known biography of Newt Ball. And in 1987, you were the co-author of Theismann with then star Redskins quarterback <laughs> Joe Theismann. <laughs> yes. Go, please. And, uh, please, go ahead. I did, first of all, I just did the, the lead to your obituary right there. Dave Kindred, co-author of Theismann. <laughs> oh, good. Joe Theismann. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Um, you know, through the years, every now and then, I've had athletes approach me about writing a book with them. And I always sort of, I can't say I shudder at the idea, but I don't, I don't relish the idea of writing a book with an athlete, even though sometimes the money's pretty good and blah, blah, blah. So I'm just going to throw a big one at you. Theismann by Joe Theismann and Dave Kindred. Good experience, bad experience. <laughs> well, I've, I've talked about this before and, and I'll confess, I'll confess my sins to you here too. That book happened because when Joe, was an active athlete uh, when he was becoming a star with the Washington Redskins. He was, as he continued to be, and probably still is now, a nonstop talker. Mm-hmm. And one time at a Redskins camp in Carlisle, he came off the practice field preseason, came off the practice field. You know, we, the assembled press, were kind of laying around on the grass, you know, intercepting players as they walked by. And Joe came walking by and no one said hello or anything. And, and he said, anybody want to talk to me? No, there was silence. So Joe picked up somebody's tape recorder and started interviewing himself. That's the kind of guy he was. So I figured that if I'm going to do a book, I hadn't written nothing at the time. You know, Theismann would be a good one because he's got a star quality. People know him and he will talk nonstop. So I had proposed to him a book, let's say 1982, maybe. Is that when they won a Super Bowl? I had proposed a book with yeah. him then. I had not proposed a, as told to. I just wanted to do a book. And he says, no, we don't want to do that. So now Lawrence Taylor cracks his leg in two. And Joe calls me, literally calls me from the hospital. What year was that? 84, a couple of years later. And Joe says, that book you want to do. I've got time to do that now. <laughs> okay. So we did it and the, there was money involved. So I got some money, you know, nothing that you'd even talk about, but it was okay. And we did it. And Joe talked nonstop. I got enough stuff to write a book. At the time he was involved with this Hollywood actress named, uh, and maybe I've intentionally forgotten her name, Kathy Lee Cross, that her name. There was a chapter in there that Joe had basically dictated to me about his relationship with Crosby. Uh, I wrote it as the author, co-author, Joe's account of this relationship. And she then rewrote that chapter. There's a chapter in my book written with Joe Theismann, a chapter in there written by Kathy Lee Crosby about their relationship. That's awesome. Because that was my first intersection with something called a non-disclosure agreement. I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement so that I wouldn't talk about anything that wasn't in the book. Okay, so I did that. And the book was okay, as those kind of books go, but I had resolved then to never do that again, never do another book with any other athlete ever again. 
I said it was like studying to be an architect and building a doghouse. <laughs> I didn't want to do that anymore. Is it true you would not be writing? Because I heard rumors <laughs> that you and Kathy Lee Crosby are collaborating on a book. Would that not be happening? <laughs> that would not be happening anytime soon. Let me ask you a final question, and I like asking this one on this podcast. Give me your story of the, mo- the, be- the best confrontation you ever had with a subject. Coach named Robert Montgomery Knight. This was early on. This is when he was a great coach and had great teams. They beat Kentucky. They were beating Kentucky by like 25 in December 1975, I believe it was. I was in Louisville. So the game is going back and forth. I see the coaches standing in midcourt, Knight and Joe Hall. And then I see Knight slap Joe Hall in the back of the head and then drop his hand in front like to shake hands. I see Joe Hall refuse to shake hands. The game is going on while this is going back and forth. So after the game, the press gathers in one of the classrooms in the assembly hall and we all sit in these little chairs you know with the fold down desk so that you can take notes you know which i think was designed to make us all feel like we were in the sixth grade again and people are asking questions about the game and i hold up my hand and i ask my question you know what happened with you and coach hall there at midcourt and knight says we're here to talk about basketball anybody got a basketball question so somebody asked a basketball question. Somebody else asked a basketball question. I raised my hand again, and I asked my question again. And he says the same thing. We go back and forth. You know, I'm still pretty young then. I'm kind of a young columnist, my fifth or sixth year as a columnist, never really sure what I'm doing. And I don't want to be, like, thrown under the bus by Bobby Knight. But I'm also now more afraid professionally to not ask my question than I had been originally to ask it. So I ask it again. I say, coach, 17,000 people here today saw you hit the other team's coach. What happened? He said, we're here to talk about basketball. Uh, Anybody got a basketball question? So somebody asked a basketball question. Then he looks back at me and says, David, what was your question? And I repeat it again. So he gives some bullshit about he does that to players all the time, blah, blah, blah. So I say, okay. At the assembly hall, the press row was behind the players' benches up in the bleachers. Now I'm sitting there writing my column about this incident. Everybody else is writing about the basketball game, but I'm writing about something I had never seen before. You know, the one team's coach hit the other team's coach. You know, so I'm writing and I look up. And I see it coming across the assembly hall court, Bobby Knight. Knight, 6'4", 240, 250. And I'm looking at him kind of lumbering across the court like a bear. He's got no shoulders. He's like a bear. And I'm thinking, I actually said this out loud to the guy next to me. I said, here comes Knight. This cannot be good. He sits down right beside me and says, how do I get myself into these things? This is 20 years, 25 years before Twitter, but I'm doing yep. – now I'm I'm asking Knight questions about that incident, and I'm writing his answers into my column. So I'm kind of live tweeting this incident that happened in 1975. If it had happened in 1985 even, five or six years into ESPN, certainly if it happened in 2000, 
it'd be played on ESPN a thousand times every day for a week because it was a right. kind of a dramatic thing. Joe Hall's answer later was, I should have just decked him on the spot. Well, that would have been an interesting thing. See, Joe Hall fighting yeah. Bobby Knight at midcourt. After that, again, it was kind of a lesson with a bully. I didn't let him cow me with the first time I asked the question, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. You know, I finally got a column out of it, the only column that should have been written that day. Well, Dave, I um, seriously, this is a thrill. This is a thrill for me, and I love that you're doing that. I'm, I'm actually jealous of you. Like I'm jealous of you covering the Morton well, Lady Potters because it just seems so fun and so innocent. Let me tell you one other thing, Jeff. The, another reason I okay. did this is one time Bob Costas said he'd really like to just quit it all and cover a minor league baseball team. Well, you know he was never going to do that, but that's kind of what I've done. It's kind of like, okay, I've had yeah. all of that. I don't need any of that anymore. I just want to do something that's fun, and this is fun every time. I want to thank today's guest, Dave Kindred, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Dave Kindred and read his awesome work at MortonLadyPotters.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>